I assume you won't deny it, and that this isn't the first time. No, but I thought dishonest people had an understanding. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 153, back to Cole's choice. What are we talking about today? We are talking about L'Argent from 1983, and that's written and directed by Robert Bresson, his final film, and it stars Christian Pate, Vincent Restorucci, Carolyn Lang, and Sylvie Van den Elsen. It's about the ramifications resulting from the passing of one simple 500-franc counterfeit note and the cascade of tragic consequences that befall the innocent man who is the one that catches the blame for its circulation. It's inspired by a Leo Tolstoy novella called The Forged Coupon, so you know it's going to be a laugh riot. Well, before I even knew that, I wrote down, gee, this seems a lot like Tolstoy. And Dostoevsky and all those other terribly melancholic Russians. Now, sometimes we ask each other, especially if it's a first time viewing, if there's anything we should keep in mind while we watch. Right, we do this before we sit down. And the only thing that I told you this time was the image that I keep in my head of the cumulative effect of this film. The way I describe it is that it's focused and stately, like a museum whose only exhibit is composed of the artifacts of a tragic crime. Now, was this accurate for you? Would you describe it differently? How did my description of that affect your viewing? I think you told me that feeling that you had well before we actually watched it. Oh, yeah. Weeks. Yes. So I had carried it around actually in my head wondering what is going to unfold here? Is it going to feel like a memory palace or something completely different? Then I think, as I often do, I set that aside when I was actually watching the film. Maybe enough time had passed or it was so new to me, I was just letting it move through me. And then I came back to it again at the end. And I think that that's an incredibly apt description. And at the same time, I don't think it does justice to the incredibly formal nature of what I feel that I'm seeing. And I'll be returning to that a few times over the course of the podcast. But I think you summed it up very well. Now, how much Brisson have you seen before this? Well, none, I'm sorry to say. And... I have a little bit of a full disclosure to make. Okay. So I had this very distinct feeling that I knew him by reputation, and I had this sense of him basically operating in the 1940s. And that's when I realized I had been confusing Robert Bresson with Henri Cartier Bresson, (laughs) the photographer. So I didn't know him (laughs) at all, essentially, and I didn't know his reputation either. But you thought you did. I thought I did. Of course, both of them do have very strong reputations, so maybe that gave him a little bit of a pass. So what do you think of the photographer, Brisson? <laughs> I think he's great, too. 
I will say I was familiar with many of Robert Bresson's films. I knew the titles. I just haven't seen any of them. Gotcha. Well, I'm really intrigued at the idea of what it must be like to be coming in at the end of his career for the film that I think is the perfect summation of everything that he's done. It was the film that he was most satisfied with. Imagine being in your 80s and making something so vital and so powerful. Amazing after the career that he had to go out making what I think is his strongest statement. That's really enviable for his powers to never, literally never be in decline after decades. Well, it's something to aspire to, certainly, and it is really intriguing to me. It makes me even more so want to start back at the beginning. Do you think that a person like me who hasn't seen the films, should I start at the beginning? That's interesting that you asked that, because I was thinking about this, too, because I have to live vicariously through you in this regard with these particular films. I can't think of a case where I have come in for a director's swan song like that, though I must have done it at some point. I assume my reaction would just be similar to anything that I just discovered. I would be excited about having an entire body of work to dig into, but this is slightly different. And this is where what I was thinking answers your question, maybe. Coming in at the end, at the highest point like this, I think it would add a new wrinkle of chronology for me. Do I go all the way back to the beginning and build to this point? Or, just as intriguingly, do I work backwards from here and see the layers and techniques that he had stripped away get added back on? I was going to maybe propose that one. So as we pull back and pull back from this purest form... We see these things that he eventually eliminated accumulate in reverse. Because what we're talking about now is very important for this specific filmmaker. Other filmmakers, maybe not so much, but he was all about the practice of his work. An analog I was thinking of was Prince, actually, because the way Prince recorded a song, he put every idea that he had on the track and then eventually pulled off the things that he thought didn't work until he was left with what he thought was the perfect song. But who doesn't want to go back and listen to those demos where he has every idea on the track at once? Well, Prince is my life coach, so (laughs) I'll do whatever he thinks would be the good plan. Rest in peace, Prince. We miss you. So a question for you specifically, you knowing the body of work. He made just about 13 films. Do I have that right? Mm -hmm. So how do you compare him with... Other filmmakers that have that same enormous reputation with a very small output. I was thinking Tarkovsky, Malik. The one crucial thing that they have in common, I think, is that they don't dilute their output. That is the most important thing in all of their catalogs for me when I'm approaching their films. It's similar to the John Cazale thing. He only was in four feature film roles before he died, and he's batting a thousand. And I think it's what happens both with his performances and then this directorial output. It's what happens when you are in a position to remove commercial considerations from your artistic life. Of the three, Brisson is my favorite, but he only edges out Tarkovsky by maybe a little bit, the smallest margin. On one hand, obviously that makes sense in terms of what I favor because stylistically he's the most severe, the most formally minimalist. That's true, yes. But then on the other hand, It seems like he might be a hard sell for me if you come at it from a different angle, since so much of his worldview is born of his Catholic faith. I took that completely away from the equation. It seemed like you were born to watch these movies. (laughs) 
And for me, I think Tarkovsky edges him out just a little bit. But again, this is my first one. But they're apples and oranges. And we will get into a little bit of my ambivalence about this. Well, should we get into the movie proper? Let's do it. Speaking of ambivalence, this petulant French teen Norbert, it opens with him needing money for a debt. And it seems a little desperate in that teen way. He has a friend that's a budding counterfeiter. So all this begins with an adolescent prank, essentially, trying to pass this bill. The clerk at the camera shop checks it, hesitates a little, but then she takes it, and the shop owner catches it later, partly because it has recently happened twice already. But he determines to pass the problem on to someone else. Paris is apparently awash in these bills, and I get the impression that Bresson considers money a filthy and treacherous business, engaging only the worst facets of our nature. Society at large, though, we are locked into this relationship with it. And for example, this renewal of the cycle is the catalyst here. First of the month means money changing hands. Do you feel like that's a universal thing? Because it's true for Norbert. It's true for Bone Thugs and Harmony. It's just the language we all speak, right? I think so. Bills, income, at least in the Western world, as far as I can see. And I think also more than that, cash is the thing that's universal. Well, the shop owner pays a fuel bill with it, and Yvonne, the truck driver, he later attempts to buy his lunch with these bills. But he is arrested. I think this only happens, though, because he reacts violently when confronted about this. That part of his nature is truly his undoing here. I don't think it has as much to do with the fact that he unknowingly tried to pass these bills, but basically because of how he reacted when confronted. It's the most exaggerated moment we see in the film of anyone laying their hands on someone else. And it's the first really dramatic implementation of this beautiful focus on hands throughout the movie. They're typically highlighting an exchange, in this case, a violent exchange, but it could also be an exchange of money, an exchange of contraband, because in prison, other things take the place of money, but it's still symbolically the same. Meat for cigarettes, for example. But the way he isolates and emphasizes hands in these transactions, it elevates them to sacred art practically. I think it also connotes that we are constantly connected, even if we don't want to be or think that we are. Just this simple act of us touching, even if there's a medium that makes us touch, it means that we're in this together and we're often passing these terrible things to another person. I think my very favorite image, though, of hands is the picking hazelnuts, which I actually only discovered was a tree nut from Three Wishes for Cinderella. I do want to jump in for a second, though, and talk about the quote unquote violence, because at least a part of it is him stating correctly, trying to assert his innocence because he doesn't know anything about this. And he then tries to make it right, which is, let's go to the place that I got this from. They can tell you. So he's not a thug. He's not a born thug. I wonder about what he's born as. Okay. You're right. He does say, let's sort this out, but not before he grabs a fistful of the guy's jacket and insists that they do so. To me, that reeks of desperation. And I think that's maybe how I would feel in that situation, too. We'll see what you have to say about that as we come back to this idea repeatedly. Okay. Interesting. But it's not the better angels of our nature that are being engaged with any of this. And 
this intersection, I think, of the sacred and the profane, it's often at the center of Brisson's work. I would actually even go a little bit further than that. Not just the intersection, but the intertwining of the sacred and the profane, sometimes inextricably so. Now, critics sometimes saw these later films as a result of a crisis of faith that Brisson was having. But I think that's misguided and maybe a little presumptuous. The argument is that redemption and grace are sought and found more often in his earlier films. But I don't feel like there's a great distance between the two, the beginning and the end here. I think more likely this is just a cumulative effect of decades of life in general and also refining his art and addressing these themes in particular throughout the years. Because he did continue to say that he saw God everywhere, right? Exactly. So I don't sense a crisis necessarily. I just see an ever more thorough investigation. And I'm not a person of faith myself, but it seems like a faith would be useless if it wouldn't stand up to rigorous evaluation. And Brisson's rigor was readily evident. I also read that he considered himself a Christian atheist, but then possibly that's apocryphal. That's a story I have not heard. I think it's worth investigating, and I think that's also something to think about if you do go back through the catalog. Well, to shift gears a little bit, I want to talk about this color scheme. I love this color scheme. Or maybe I should say color schemes, plural, because each of the two sections of the film has a distinct one. The first section is all these muted grays and greens, its institutional settings, its currency itself. It basically makes this the Jean Dielman of serial killer movies. And in the second section of the film, it contains this greater variety of colors that you find in the natural world and the final act's rural setting. And Brisson, he wasn't the biggest fan of shooting in color. He didn't make his first color film, A Gentle Woman, until 1969. He said he could never quite get the colors to translate on screen the way that his eyes saw them. It wouldn't surprise me if you told me that he was fully colorblind and maybe just beyond reds and greens as well. Because this is not pop art by any stretch of the imagination. And yes, the color scheme struck me right away. And I think that this is an integral part of his separation of cinema and theater, which he talked about quite a bit. In this cinema, there is no texture. And one of the first things you learn in theatrical design is that texture reads really well to an audience. That's why if you go to a play, a good one, that has any sort of a budget, you'll see wallpaper, patterns, distressing, all of those kinds of textures that you take for granted on surfaces, even if you don't want them in your own home, they're really important to your, as the audience, sensory reaction to what you're seeing. It gives depth and life. I think so much so that the next time you do go to a play and you don't notice the scenery, that is because it's doing its job. Well, let's talk about another technical aspect of Brisson then, because I think this is what steps in in place of maybe those popping colors, and that is his framing. This is what it's all about. I was constantly aware of his very specific framing throughout this. Did you notice it as much? Okay. This answer is coming in all capital letters. How could I not? <laughs> Do you think I was looking away from the screen the whole time? You're crazy. From the very first image, we realized later that that's the ATM window. Every instance of the cell door, we see so many backs 
and torsos as opposed to heads and shoulders. Yes, it's very specific framing. And I think you would be crazy to not notice it. But it's not showy in the traditional sense. It's not showing you something spectacular. It calls attention to itself because of its precision more than anything else. What it makes me think of, think of the way that your favorite still life painter places objects within their compositions. And I especially feel this when we get to the final act and we're in that more rural environment that I mentioned. The way the axe is at rest in the hay, almost like it's alive, like it's a snake, inert, but waiting to strike. And then there are those things that we might not even notice, but have a subconscious effect. You look at one of these instances at how her kitchen table is arranged. And then there will be a kettle or a teapot where the spout has been turned to face the camera directly. So you have an intrusion into that plane, which is just slightly more psychologically and aesthetically discomforting than if that had been turned and you're looking at a profile of an image of a thing that you recognize more readily that way. I think the still life painting is a really good analogy here because the painter expects us to stay in that frame and so does Bresson. There are so few examples of the camera even moving, even doing a pan, that those few instances become startling. And for all my talk of formalism or your talk of rigor, I don't mean to suggest that this is static in any way, shape, or form. I'll make a little bit more of a distinction about that later, too, because that is definitely something that appeals to me, that part of it, but I describe it a little differently. I guess I should say I don't mean to suggest that static means dull or terrible right. or boring. No, none of those things. And since we're on the subject, let's talk about the narrative a little bit, because this process that Yvonne goes through is a cascade of misery, basically. Everything has such a gravity just settling down over him the entire time, becoming heavier and heavier. No one believes him when he professes his innocence regarding the counterfeit bills, and others actively engage in deception to maintain that. He's a family man, but he lost his job, and he's too proud to ask for it back. He even receives leniency from the court, which should feel like a relief, but somehow it doesn't. Uh, are you watching the same movie as me? I was hugely relieved when the leniency came. I didn't know everything else that was going to come afterwards. All that felt like to me was like they were setting him on a tee. Okay. It happens 20 minutes in. You <laughs> you're know right. you've got a long way to go. You're totally right. Well, and we're talking about money here, so the stakes could not possibly be higher, at least for those of us in the same kind of boat. Well, maybe we just need to take a page out of Paris and his denizens book, essentially, because this camera shop, and in fact, the city at large, is just full of crooks and unethical shits. One of the cardinal rules that perpetuates this ecosystem is that you don't take it too far, and you certainly don't tacitly acknowledge it. That scene that was our opening scene, I thought dishonest people had an understanding. Lucien, the shop assistant, he is fired after that, but he takes the keys to the shop and the safe. Norbert's mother advises him to lie and evade responsibility. This shop owner gets what he deserves with the robbery. Every moment in this, large and small, enables or furthers larceny in some way. Brisson is just eviscerating French society at every level here. Everyone is paying it forward to the next person, at least the next lesser person on the totem pole. The next victim. Yes. He should have called it the Grifters. I mean, was that title already taken? 
Can you imagine Brisson adapting Jim Thompson? How incredible that would be? Seems like a pretty interesting mix with that dialogue. Okay, are we going to write our fan fiction now? <laughs> well, we were talking about all of this incredible framing, and we see, as I had mentioned, cell doors, the ATM window, so many doorways, so many portals. Yes, this is another signature device of Brisson's. He loves shooting through doorways. The movie proper, it begins with Norbert coming through the door to ask for money. And then the movie ends with an even more compelling and suggestive use of a door when Yvonne is led away after confessing to these murders. The crowd is assembled outside the restaurant, just like you would assume when something is happening, buzz is going around town, someone's being arrested, there's been a crime. But they don't turn their heads to watch him being led away as he passes by them. They keep staring into the open door that he was marched through. The last image you have is the assembled crowd staring into the void. That's so interesting that you point that out. It makes me want to, of course, watch it again and look for that. When I was thinking about that ending, I think that the person is not as interesting as the thing or the crime. They're looking for an answer that they're not going to get. Well, not having seen much Brisson, I was wondering how you responded to this style of performance. It's often one of the biggest obstacles for people coming to his films for the first time because there isn't much for a viewer to cling to in the traditional sense. Personalities are intentionally diminished. Frequently there is minimal emotional display. I saw where one reviewer called the performers in this robots. Brisson himself preferred to refer to them as models. To put it in contrast with a theater experience, Nothing could be more antithetical to Brisson's method than this idea of acting to reach the back row. So with your background and knowing all that, was it difficult to engage with on that level? Well, finally, a film made for my non-acting ability in <laughs> our playlets. Okay, this is where I do want to talk about my ambivalence a okay. little bit. So bear with me while I drone on here for a second. So like you said, I tend to go into most films looking for some sort of a connection or to feel something. So that is not a motive that I should be approaching this film, I think. So am I in fact asking the wrong question of how am I supposed to feel about this? Should I take feel out? Because I know you and many, many, many others feel so passionately about his work, including this, I could feel your tension just sitting next to me on the couch. So why didn't I respond to it in the same way? I'll just say I did not respond to it in the same way. So then I was reading more and more about Bresson and his process, and he was talking about the actor learning his part presupposes a self known in advance, which does not exist to him. I don't know why that is, because I've never approached any piece of work that way. I'm going to throw in another quote. What I seek is not so much expression by gesture, word, or mime as expression by the rhythm and combination of images, by their position, relationship, and number. But at the same time, I don't feel that this is an experiment or just an exercise. And I think that you would agree. You would never call the film either of those things. 
Oh, but there's where you're wrong. Yet again, I'm going to get to this idea in a little bit. You keep oh, bringing up all these things. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, I interpret it as two different things. But again, I'll get to that part. Okay. I want to try to sort of wrap it up a little bit here. I know I've been going on and on and on. I do think that I'm in good company with the questioning my response. Mike Sarn of the Films magazine stated... Bresson is not trying to please. The film is not designed to be liked. So I'm there. I don't have to apply any of those words or adjectives to how I approach the film. So I come back to something that you were talking about earlier in terms of some critics saying, did he have a crisis of faith? And I think it's a little bit more about going back to the original story of Tolstoy's that all of these motives in the story, survival, revenge, redemption, they were a big deal at the time, but Bresson is maybe saying at this point, the world is more dehumanized, and that's what he's reflecting. Now, you say ambivalent towards it. That was in the viewing at the moment, maybe just after. Has that feeling changed in the hours, days since we've watched it? Has it evolved a little bit? I think that it has, and I've been continuing to think about it, which I think is always a mark of something that's made a huge impact on me. It took me a lot of reading to set aside, like I mentioned, that notion of, well, do I have to like it? I don't hate it, but I don't have to feel either way about it. And when we get into the story a little bit more, that's where I want to maybe resolve that question. Well, we've talked a fair amount about relatability lately, and I think that that is often the measure that people are taking when deciding whether or not they're actually going to give themselves over to a film. You said a couple of things here that are interesting. Like you do, I think people in general want to feel like they are a part of the story. And that can't happen if it is intentionally keeping you at arm's length. If this style puts up a wall for people in that regard, I think it's unfortunate. If they find the characters to be completely inscrutable, it might make them struggle with any of the why questions they might have about actions the characters take or decisions they make. Fortunately for me, this is my raison d'etre. It is a great opportunity, I think, and you touched on this a little bit, to recalibrate what you think of as a movie's function. Great. Thank you for articulating that so much better than I was able to. Okay, well, the performances, they left you feeling a little ambivalent, but do you have similar feelings about the execution of the narrative, particularly with how elliptical it often is? It's told so matter-of-factly, and I think that goes back to what I was talking about, about this ongoing dehumanization, and it's presenting the world as constantly alienating us from each other, from it, making the world then, or motives, this big mystery, because they're just happening, whether we want them to or not, whether they're just or not. And so that elliptical nature made me feel that grinding nature of inequality and injustice, this perpetuation. So when I started to think then about the narrative, like I mentioned before, it's never boring, even though it's formal, because there's constant action happening. So if we think again about this model concept that he was using, that there's no sense of self in the actor, they're just basically speaking the lines. Does it then fall to me as the viewer to imbue that action with my own terror, my own sense of defeat? I think I was projecting that a little bit when we were talking about Yvonne earlier, because I absolutely do that. So is it the film 
that I'm ambivalent to, but not the story. But by nature of that question, am I coming to my own conclusion that I'm actually not ambivalent anymore because I am so involved in the story and that's on purpose. That was all by design. You said something there that's very interesting to me. The fact that everything is told so matter-of-factly, which I think is absolutely true. There's no flourish here. And yet, he holds these contradictory, or at least seemingly contradictory, ideas simultaneously. That matter-of-fact depiction alongside this idea that was very important to him, in which he says that the most important ideas in a film are the most hidden. So you can see why he appeals to me. He expects the viewer to be capable and rigorous as well. You don't get softer techniques like dissolves or fades. By this point, Rassan has sworn off of those and their inherent artificialities. You get just straight cuts. It's the precision of a scalpel with the lingering effect of a blunt instrument. And the same with the performances. We characterize Norbert as petulant. He doesn't even sneer at any point, but that characterization is apt. Because it's developed in the narrative, because it's developed in the framing, I think this is a very new experience for me. I can't really come up with a film like this. That by itself is super exciting, just to have that happening and me be able to watch you go through it. Well, you were yelling the whole time, and I'm sitting there thinking deeply. Yeah, I went through the same things that you were going through when I saw it. I was lucky enough to see it in the theater the first time I saw it, and so it was completely overwhelming. The silence was deafening. Except for the crinkle of my jujube wrappers. (laughs) Everyone just sat there numb. Or was it like going to the Paramount and there was booing and hissing? No, there was none of that. (laughs) Everyone sat, rapt attention. Yes. And numbing, I think, is a great description of it because that's what Yvonne is going through repeatedly. This job loss, it sets up a hardship that leaves him susceptible to taking on unsavory assignments. It's kind of a spiral of bad decisions, almost like you would see in a Coen Brothers movie. Because he's no longer a truck driver, now he's a getaway driver for a bank job, and I love the way this heist is portrayed. This is a perfect example of what we're talking about, that matter-of-factness, yet with that elliptical nature. This may be the most Brisson segment of any film that I've ever seen. So much is implied here. There's a parade of police vehicles going the other way, Cops are posed outside the bank, almost frozen. Yvonne hears the gunfire, doesn't see anything. You have to know if you're him. Get out of this car and walk away. And another good framing in the doorway, the robbers coming out with their hands up. No sound, no music, no nothing. I don't think Yvonne is that smart of a guy in retrospect. He doesn't get out while the getting is good. He only runs when it's too late. To me, this is all about Russian elimination of choice. Well, he's up to his neck in that because he's sentenced to three years in prison. This sort of reversal of fortune would be a shock to your system, even though it's the result of your own poor decisions, right? Because his life was fine just a couple of weeks prior. That's the frightening part. That's what I've been saying to you. (laughs) That's why he grabbed some skin right there. Yes, this is terrifying. So he has to know in his position, at least I think, that one false move can lead to this. At least that's what I am imbuing his thought process with. Still, though, even that doesn't have to be the end of the world. People have survived and recovered from far worse than a three-year stint for a bank robbery gone wrong. But 
Far worse is on the horizon here, because visiting day comes. He wants to start over, but his wife leaves, terribly upset, essentially without a word. It's a devastating blow to him, and we come to learn later that her silence was because their daughter had died. From then on, her letters go return to Cinder. Obviously, if you've seen a fair amount of his films, Brisson concentrated a fair amount on crime and punishment. It was a central theme in his filmography. And he came by that honestly, I think. He himself spent 18 months in a German prison camp as a young man during World War II, so he was intimately familiar with the life of a prisoner, especially those prisoners at the mercy of forces beyond their control. In Brisson's case, though, I think we need to extend that phrase beyond its familiar usage. It's not just crime and punishment, it's crime and punishment and redemption. Almost every examination of those themes is viewed through a redemptive lens. Even as severe as this final film is, grace does appear, whether or not it's embraced or accepted is a different story. Because Yvonne isn't necessarily wired to accept grace. Back in prison, we have an instance of yet another violent reaction to his situation. And so here's where I come back to that point I was making earlier. He is definitely flawed, but your argument coming from the other side, unreasonably so? I don't think his reactions are unreasonable. And I do truly believe that we are in the Tolstoy-Bresson world of everything removing our humanity. Boy, you're just digging yourself a bigger and bigger hole by the time I, I get am. to it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Are you going to hit the buzzer when we get to the end and say, oh, you got served? Yes, I guess I'm really hanging on to this because I feel so upset about everything that happens to him. And it does truly feel to me like it is nurture, not nature. That every response is the only one that he sees before him. And it's because of what has been put before him. Is this where I hit the buzzer? <laughs> <laughs> you can if you want to. No, well, I agree. His weaknesses are definitely exacerbated by bad timing. And in the wake of this particular incident in the mess hall, he's losing track of time. He doesn't know what day it is. I read this as a really bad sign for him. Here's maybe where I felt the most sympathetic for him. Because I see this as a sign of giving up. It reminded me a little of two days, one night, where even though the movements weren't overemphasized or telegraphed, not particularly obvious, you said you recognized all these things that she was doing as preparations for her suicide. Right. And going back to Yvonne for a second, and again to Bresson talking about models and there is no self, he essentially has no nature. So how can he have these flaws that you're insisting upon? Because he just showed up in the story. Well, maybe he's going to take a quick exit from the story because he has saved up his medication and kept it hidden in his cell until he has accumulated enough to attempt an overdose. The resourcefulness of prisoners is just astounding. When I hear these kinds of stories of what they are able to do in this small enclosed space with almost no contact. But sorry, to jump back in for a second, yes, I did know that that's what he was preparing to do. And I think it's a very significant Bressonian moment that he's prayed for by another prisoner. So this gives an opportunity in the story, an entry point to bring Lucien back into the narrative. Picking up on another of our criminal threads, we find Lucien scamming an ATM. And word circulating around the neighborhood is that Lucien has become almost a Robin Hood figure in the ensuing time between Yvonne's arrest and now. 
Because at one point earlier, he had told his friends that he was basically going to make a name for himself. He was going to be a big deal. And that's at least partially true. He's caught, and in court, he is defiant and idealistic. But it's not enough. It's not enough to have him set free. And he's having a cosmological debate with a judge on the nature of grace, too, at the same time, and forgiveness and apology, which I find to be fascinating. Very Brissonian as is this instance of repetition of arrival at the prison. We saw Yvonne's arrival, Lucien's arrival completely mimics it, including his position in line. And that is running concurrent with Yvonne's return from the hospital. One of those uses of the pan I was mentioning earlier, and it's incredible here. So we're clearly meant to anticipate, possibly even fear, their inevitable meeting. Were you anxious about that, especially with how their parallel paths are visually laid out here? Definitely, because this would be, in another film or another story, kind of the climatic point. Lucian is just one of the people, but the most obvious tools of his oppression. Well, they do meet, but it doesn't necessarily go how we might expect. Lucian wants to make good and offers Yvonne an escape plan. Yvonne doesn't take him up on this, but this escape is another one of those beautiful Bressonian moments of action taking place off-screen, the way that sound begins before you even see the action, if you see it at all. And as all this happens, and then the aftermath plays out, Yvonne's cellmate, one of the most intriguing and brief appearances in the film, is the voice of reason, the voice that he should be listening to, the one helping us process all of these events reasonably. And he admonishes slash advises him, you've already been avenged without doing a thing. So... Why do you think this isn't enough for Yvonne? That character is so interesting. Another philosopher Mm -hmm. in our midst. But here's why it's not enough. Because he hasn't been avenged. The system has been avenged. Let's go back to where this all started. Those two teens. Why doesn't he take vengeance on them? But he doesn't. They get nothing. They've been punished. Not at all. So what if the store was robbed. They're able to move on. He has been convicted of that crime and the next, which of course he was complicit in, in everyone's eyes. So try being a felon, release back into society at this point. He's only serving this latest sentence because of that original crime. So I think about the thing that would ultimately satisfy him, and I've got some ideas on that. Well, you're right. Yvonne's release day eventually does arrive, but release into what? You make a very good point. He literally has nothing left to lose. And in a film full of quietness, the tranquility of this mood is working so hard at belying the severity of what's actually in play. And it doesn't take long before we see how severe it is. Almost upon release, he gets a room in a hotel and murders the hotel operators. These impressionistic flashes will stay with me forever. Blood in the sink and on his pants, stealing the till. His descent, I feel like at this point, is now finally complete. Degeneracy is the only word for this. He has completely degenerated. And here's where I'm hitting the buzzer. Here's where I'm saying this whole nature versus nurture thing. I'm calling back to Jimmy Stewart's speech in Rope. There must have been something in you that let you do this thing. Yes, 
He has suffered tragedies one on top of the other, but these things happen to other people all the time. I've lost jobs. My parents have literally lost three young children and none of us have turned so readily to murder <laughs> in any instance. <laughs> yeah. It's like Ann Todd in So Evil My Love. The flaw was there all along. Circumstances just exposed it. Here's where I'm going to ring the buzzer back. <laughs> okay. By the way, the motel, the most use of color, I think, when you go back, look at the wallpaper and the carpet. Yeah, it's practically garish compared to everything else. But what else would you expect from a place called the Hotel Modern? I do think that something else is at work here in his mind, which I'm still sort of developing. Because again, I go back to this idea, at least that I have, of the opportunities for felons once they're released into society. Does he have a chance to go another way, this specific character? Because of what we know of him, which is basically nothing, only responses and reactions, is he willing to put in the work to do something that would put him in another direction? A non-murder direction is what I'm yeah. saying. The life he led prior to that seems like it's possible at least he had a family, a daughter who was several years old, a marriage that was obviously several years old. He was gainfully employed. So prior to this, it has been demonstrated that he is at least capable of living on the straight and narrow. With a support system. He wasn't born with a baby and a wife. He had to get there eventually. Well, let's ask Bresson what he thinks. <laughs> so we next see him on the street doing some possible window shopping, looking at a toy shop. I don't think that's as much window shopping as Reverie for the Dead Daughter. Oh, really? I didn't know if he was casing the joint. But regardless, a woman walks by and he looks at her. She turns back to look at him. What did you make of that look that she gives him? It's the first time that we've seen her. Well, it could be a few things. Her nature, we find out, being one of service and ministering to people, maybe she's just more aware of the downtrodden and the lost. It could be that she feels a kinship because she too is adrift in a way. And there are moments of almost tenderness between them eventually where they commune. He helps her with work and he offers her those nuts that he took from the tree. They are sharing labor and sustenance together. That doesn't happen between either of those characters and anyone else. Or it could just be Occam's Razor. It's such a small town that they live in that anyone new would stick out like a sore thumb and obviously draw attention. But I feel like it's more a combination of the first two. They definitely make a connection. It's not a connection that there is a lot of comfort in, though, because when he is following her at that great distance all the way to her house in the country, it is chilling. The first time we even see the wind... It's like the world is alive in a different way. I think of that look, I think she knows what's going to happen. I tell you who definitely knows, dogs always know. The dog knows what's up with this guy. But I 100% agree with what you're saying too, because she can't help her nature any more than he can help his. She tends to her family, sometimes to her detriment. She knows what he is, but allows him in anyway. She is just seeking a deeper understanding of humanity in general, of him, of herself. She asks him why he killed. And he says, I'm not a doctor, which is almost a laugh line for me in this. It's part of his plot. I'll get there in a little bit. But she would forgive anyone 
That is truly what defines her nature. This element of her character overrides the inevitability of what is to happen when you invite your own killer into your home. She is the support system for him. She's the support system for her own family. And to me, she has no identity other than that. And I think also, like him, no other choices. Here's where I say it goes back to nature. That old story of, you knew I was a snake when you took me in. And it's an apt analogy in this case, because nature is the place where true violence occurs. You can't impose your will upon it. And I put in my notes here that she is almost like a beacon calling out to him in this environment. She is the last and most poignant example of him receiving grace. In a less cruel world, she would be this character in a Vim Vendors movie. Mm. But you say something about her not having an identity. Maybe beacon is the wrong word here. Maybe she is a vessel is the word I should be looking for instead. I think that's a great word. And this is what I was thinking about in our couple of previous questions. Getting to this point, he didn't have that same character, kind of at his disposal, as it were. And to me, this is still putting both of them at this place together because of happenstance, circumstance, whatever. Yeah, because we should note that her family, that family, has its own chain of circumstances that brought them to this convergence, which is obvious when she recounts their path to get to this point. It's almost like they were on a collision course. It was inevitable. Yes, it's all broken moments, unforeseen deaths, illnesses. We don't know to what extent this woman's personality was changed after being forced to, for example, care for her father, who is an alcoholic. We don't know how long she's been on her own. She's a blank, too. I am taking away nature. I'm going purely with nurture. Interesting. So we both see this as inevitable, but for completely different reasons, maybe. Because God is controlling all of this. He's creating the world. It's mysterious to us. We cannot possibly understand the reasons why. They are not presented to us. I don't know who this we is that you're talking about. (laughs) Well, not me. But speaking of inevitable... We finally see the return of the axe, like Chekhov's gun. And all of this happens by lantern light, this final slaughter. It's such a beautiful and ominous touch. He dispatches everyone in the house brutally. And this finale, I think, is very reminiscent of In Cold Blood, actually. Even down to the fact of asking where the money is hidden. It does feel like that. The difference for me, without that in cold blood sense of the inexorable path to that moment that was begun in childhood, if not the womb. To me, that's the big difference. And I think his demand for money is a ruse. So a ruse maybe, but to what end? Because he's only essentially fooling himself. There is no living witness that's going to tell this story. And after these murders are complete, he goes to dine at a restaurant where he confesses to police that are gathered there and is led away. But maybe the answer in that rhetorical question I ask is in what you said at the end of the movie. You said something really interesting when this was all over. I think a lot of people would think, based on the general tone and all the previous action, that his choices are now either the dull comfort of prison, because he obviously cannot be safely in the world at large, or possibly another suicide attempt. But you advance a third possibility. This is my wild theory. This is what I've been obsessed with since then. I think that demand to her for money was a ruse. I don't think he was expecting any. Just like killing the motel proprietors 
for that very small cash register take? That was not the purpose. I think this was all part of a plan, which is to ultimately get into that maximum security prison that he was told Lucian would likely be sent to after his escape because he's going to finally exact the ultimate revenge on Lucien. So this Brissonian cycle that I suggested earlier of crime and punishment and redemption has now changed to crime and punishment and vengeance. Yes, I think so. I think that was the whole point of that very specific but limited exposition by his cellmate, because no word in here is accidental. So I was just waiting for that point, and that is where I think he is headed. I don't think it was his nature that drove him to commit those murders. He didn't take any pleasure. There was no gain. It didn't dull his pain. It didn't bring anybody back. It just gets him back in this system where he can get to the person that caused this in the first place. Well, I already was thinking I immediately wanted to watch it again. And now that you say that, even more so. You know I love slow cinema. And you mentioned earlier the word static. I feel this differently than either one of those things. This is still cinema. And I feel like it's an important distinction. Slow cinema, you can still feel unspooling and meandering. I get a leisurely feeling from it, often very meditative and peaceful. This is more like those most intense moments in Bergman where you feel like time has stopped. It's like last week during our winter storm with the rolling blackouts and the power went out and all you could hear laying in bed was every clock ticking in the house. Thanks. (laughs) Nothing is moving at all, it feels like. Brisson, and this film in particular, is unmatched at creating that feeling of suspension. And that feeling to me is very intense. So that's why I was reacting this way that you describe sitting there beside me watching it. Have you ever seen a film so still that also feels so crackling and unstoppable at the same time? I cannot think of one. I mean, this is truly action to action to action to action to action. And yet, no music. Very little sound. Very little other movement happening. It is a one of a kind. We can debate the relative merits of the auteur theory, but Brisson may be my number one example of why I still put some stock in that idea. His movies are fascinating for me to watch. And this goes back to answering something you brought up way back in the beginning. Here's why. I can feel them simultaneously as the story he is telling and then as experiments in applying his artistic principles. But miraculously, neither one of those things is dependent upon nor gets in the way of the other. So when earlier I was saying it didn't feel like an exercise for its own sake, it's not that precious or pretentious. No, but I'm very definitely aware of him going through his very specific steps to craft a thing to see what comes of it. Yeah, I think I used the word practice, and I'm liking that a little bit more, too. And it's also that he so rigorously pursues the ephemeral. There's a quote I really love from Jean Pellegrie, one of the actors in Pickpocket. He knows what he wants, but he doesn't know why. And here's one last reason I feel such a kinship or a deeper appreciation of Brisson. You, Erica, often hear me preaching that there is a clear delineation between pragmatism and pessimism. And he had an even better term for that that I think I should probably adopt. He drew the distinction as being between pessimism and lucidity. He really is like no one else. You sure said something there, partner. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's true, though. And it gives me so much to think about as I look into the rest of the filmography. So then, do you have a recommendation for us? Well, jumping on your digging into the filmography bandwagon, yes, I'm going to recommend Pickpocket from 1959, also written and directed by Brisson and starring Martin LaSalle and Marika Green. This is the first time that Brisson wrote an original script instead of adapting material, and it's about a young man in Paris who casually enters the world of pickpocketing, which is a cultural institution in France. Like Yvonne, he too is captured and released early in the film only to engineer his own further decline, and he suffers the death of a loved one as well. I like this as a bookend to L'Argent because we start from the vantage point of a conscious decision to enter a life of crime as opposed to being an unfortunate victim of circumstance. It also comes early on, about a third of the way into Brisson's career, so it has that innocence relatively about it that you don't feel with L'Argent. It's not naive as a text, but the central character is so inexperienced that it's interesting to see him grapple with philosophies that he is just beginning to understand. It is a must-see. It is the head side of the coin on which L'Argent is the tails. What about you? Oh, by the way, before we leave L'Argent, I do want to suggest my patented watch it without sound recommendation, by the way. That's interesting because I wonder what that would really do. For instance, that scene where she is scrubbing clothes on the washboard outside, that sound occurs two full scenes, not just one, two full scenes before we see her actually performing that activity. You heard it here first. Everybody <laughs> go out and try it. So we were talking a lot about my reaction to the film, and it was sort of odd for me to hear Larjean spoken with such rapturous praise because it's so formal, and I don't tend to think of something very formal inspiring rapture. And then you mentioned something else that I think is very interesting, that sometimes we're on a wavelength of a film. And this is so aloof and removed that I think it's a good headspace to be in before you watch it. So I started thinking more about those people that I find myself on a wavelength or have been introduced to their wavelength. So I picked another director that you brought me to that has a very specific wavelength, and I'm delighted that I'm on it. And that is Roy Anderson's A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence from 2014. So this is the third installment in his Living Trilogy. I haven't seen the whole thing. The other two films are Songs from the Second Floor and You the Living. And in this film, it's really a bit hard to describe, but I'll say it's basically a series of scenes that are sometimes connected, sometimes not. And we have two characters that float in and out of the story, and that's our novelty salesman, Jonathan and Sam. Jonathan is played by Holger Anderson, and Sam is played by Niels Westblom. There's no main storyline. The scenes do flow into one another, though, and it is a singular experience. We actually showed You the Living for one of our movie nights to an audience that was completely unfamiliar with Roy Anderson and his work, and I think they were pretty well won over by the time it was done. I think so, too. So I hope everybody goes out to check out more of Roy Anderson's work. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Pickpocket and A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. And that brings us to the end of episode 153. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. 
The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We want to say an extra special thanks to our friend Daisuke Beppu for inviting us to sit down for one of the most fun conversations we've had in a long time, talking about all things cinema, and you can find that on Daisuke's YouTube channel, and we'll put that link in the show notes. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time, especially Scott Morris and the fine gentleman of Fuds on Film and Spencer Seams at the Shoot the Piano Player podcast. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us there. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>